It's Wednesday, March 11th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Social distancing is the big buzzword you're hearing about on how to help mitigate the spread of COVID-19. But what does it mean, and has it worked in the past? Campaign rallies are being canceled, concerts and music festivals are also being canceled, schools are closing, tough decisions are being made wherever large gatherings of people are taking place. Denise Rowland, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how social distancing could help. Next, as Joe Biden continues his rise back to frontrunner status, the attacks are increasing again from President Trump and his allies. This time they are trying to paint Biden as senile and attack his mental capacity. Biden is offering no shortage of gaffes as ammo for the president and needs to fight back. Trump, a master at branding and repetition, has proved successful at this in the past. Alex Eisenstadt, reporter for Politico, joins us for more. Finally, a little more COVID-19 coverage. New research out of China is shedding some light on who are the most at risk from the coronavirus. We already know that older people are more at risk of severe symptoms and death, but what about children and the virus? How does the infection fare along men and women? And is it the virus that's killing people or their existing diseases? Sharon Begley, senior science writer at Stat News, joins us for what the limited research says so far. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. All visitors must follow COVID-19 screening and follow reasonable precautionary measures. Precautionary measures might include, but are not limited to, wearing personal protective equipment, social distancing, uh, or visiting a designated location. Joining us now is Denise Rowland, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Denise. Pleasure to be here. We're going to be talking about social distancing and how it's the new coronavirus buzz phrase. I hadn't heard it before until a local Los Angeles official started describing it, how, you know, staying three to six feet away from somebody, and then hopefully you wouldn't catch coronavirus, COVID-19. But this is actually expanding now on larger forms. There's leaders, local leaders, they're struggling with whether to start canceling big events. We've already seen some of that happen. South by Southwest was canceled. Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy aren't doing live audiences now in, in the hopes of protecting Alex Trebek. The entire country of Italy is on lockdown. I mean, it's moving all over the place. So, Denise, tell us a little bit about social distancing, how it's worked in the past, and how effective it might have been. So, social distancing is a catch-all phrase. It spans anything from isolating people who are known to be sick, asking them to stay at home, to, like you said, cancelling mass gatherings, shutting schools, and I guess in the case of Italy, just locking down an entire country. The idea is effectively you're less likely to catch something of someone if you're coming into like contact with fewer people. It's as old as the hills, conceptually, you know, think... Old Testament leprosy colonies and that sort of thing. But in its kind of modern form and with any sort of evidence base, most people point to studies done on the Spanish flu epidemic in 1918. A few years ago, a group looked at how different US cities fared with that epidemic, looking at how quickly they responded to do social distancing in various ways, like quarantines and school closures, and then how they did on how the outbreak progressed in those cities. And inclusion to that paper was that cities that did act quickly to distance people from one another did better. They had fewer deaths, lower death rates. The two, the two um, sort of extremes were um, St. Louis and Missouri and Philadelphia. Philadelphia had like twice the death rate of St. Louis because officials there were quite slow to put in place social distancing. 
So it is considered by public health people to be a very effective strategy at containing infectious diseases. But one of the tricky parts of it is, and this might be something for other local leaders, is the money associated with a lot of this stuff. If you start closing things down, businesses, et cetera, there could be huge losses in that. So the timing of it has to be right. If you go too early, you can have huge losses. If you go too late, then it's just probably not going to be as effective as it was if you started earlier. And I think nobody has a good answer to when the sweet spot is. It will always come down to politicians' decisions. They will have to weigh those things up. And I just, there is no formula for when it makes sense. What they do know is when done too late, it's almost pointless. During H1N1 in 2009, lots of schools were closed. One group looked at school closures in Michigan and they discovered that those closures did very little to contain the disease. And it's probably because the schools only closed after a ton of people were absent. So this disease was already there. It was already widespread. Then there's no point. The horse is bolted. So this is the really difficult balancing act. And, you know, we do have seasonal flu every year and it kills tens of thousands of people in the US every winter. That is not considered a good enough reason to do social distancing, right. as harsh as that sounds. And I think with the coronavirus, people don't know. They don't know how deadly it really is. And that adds to the difficulty in making this judgment. We don't know also if social distancing will actually bring down the overall number of cases. Epidemiologists have this term called flattening the curve which basically just kind of maybe spreads it out over a longer period of time, which could be great for hospitals and local municipalities that are struggling to keep up with higher caseloads, things like that. So in that sense, social distancing at least helps in that way. Not 100% sure if it actually reduces the number of cases. Flattening the curve is key, but it's incredibly valuable in and of itself. The main value in it is that you are reducing the chances of some huge surge of cases inundating the hospitals because then the hospitals can't treat people effectively. If the cases come in a kind of more of a trickle or more of a steady flow, the odds of getting good treatment and actually dealing with those cases as best as possible are improved. So, you know, even if all you do is delay or flatten the curve and spread it out, that could actually have an impact on how many people die in the end. Denise Rowland, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. They don't call Super Tuesday for nothing. Joining us now is Alex Eisenstadt, reporter for Politico. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Hey, thanks for having me. We're going to be talking a little bit about a possible preview into the general election, but it's already starting now. President Trump and the GOP are mounting this coordinated campaign to paint the former Vice President Joe Biden as a senile old man and attacking his mental capacity. It's been a tactic that the president has used before. He's been using it with Joe Biden since he got into the race for president. So, Alex, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, what you've really seen over the last week and a half since Biden won the South Carolina Democratic primary and kind of emerged as the Democratic frontrunner in this race is Trump and his campaign, his conservative allies in the sort of conservative echo chamber. They've really mounted this concerted effort, kind of coordinated effort to brand Biden, as you said, as sort of senile, not all there to sort of question his mental fitness and his mental 
abilities and his abilities to serve as president. It has been sort of a daily drumbeat from the president through Twitter, through his rallies. And you're seeing this sort of become Republicans trying to turn this into a narrative to define Biden, even before he wins the nomination, as being someone who is not mentally fit for the presidency. And the president himself is kind of a master at this, a master at branding and repetition. That's one of the most important things. He'll say it at every rally, at every meeting, or before he gets on the plane or something like that, Sleepy Joe, things like that. That repetition just works and it sticks right away because they're catchy, funny names at times. But part of the problem is that sometimes it's a little true. Joe right. Biden has stumbled a lot. He is known for being gaff prone, and that just adds more ammo to the president. And that's sort of the thing. I think you hit upon two really important themes. One is that Trump, let's remember his history. He is sort of someone who is a professional brander. That's sort of what he was. He built and developed the Trump brand before becoming president. So he's effective at sort of labeling people, characterizing them, and then through repetition, kind of making it stick. The second thing is that the former vice president has had a number of doozies in recent weeks, saying that 150 million Americans since 2007 have died from gun violence. He mixed up Super Tuesday and Super Thursday. There was a video clip that circulated from last week in which Biden mixed up his wife and his sister at a rally. So the Republican machine, which is kind of geared up and ready for this campaign, they're very able to sort of quickly circulate and distribute these kinds of clips whenever Biden fumbles. And it's something the Biden campaign is going to have to figure out how to contend with. It's gotten so bad that on Twitter today, as I just looked it up right before we started recording this, Biden's cognitive decline is trending on Twitter. So that's that's how far it's gotten. As you mentioned, that is the big question. How does Biden's team combat this? One of the things I saw somewhere was that they're going to give him shorter speeches, give him a little bit less opportunity to throw out a gaffe. So how does the Biden campaign fight that? And then on the other side of it, it doesn't always seem that it sticks. I think the public, people that know Joe Biden, kind of give him a pass on some of these things. And that's the question. You know, uh, talking to the folks close to the former vice president, they are of the belief that, A, people are kind of sick of the president and his insults, Two, that people kind of see this as a little bit endearing, that they see Biden as Uncle Joe, the guy who sometimes says stuff that you might not expect, but that it's a little bit part of his charm. On the other hand, you have people who work for Hillary Clinton who see a lot of similarities to how this campaign is playing out to the one that played out in 2016. And as I'm sure you and a lot of your listeners will remember, in 2016, Trump and his allies waged a concerted effort to sort of raise questions, to raise doubts about Hillary Clinton's health. And during the debates, Trump said directly that he didn't believe that Clinton had the stamina to be president. And this is sort of a very similar thing that what you're seeing today. And to talking with people who work for Clinton, what they'll tell you is that those attacks are damaging and that Biden hasn't responded forcefully enough to them yet, and he's going to have to figure out a way to address them going forward. The president has this ability to highlight certain vulnerabilities. And in 2016 with Hillary Clinton, he was talking about her health and her stamina. 
And then there was instances where Hillary Clinton had these coughing fits and whatnot. And then right. I remember all the stories that, you know, is Hillary Clinton sick? Can she last in the presidency if she makes it? So, I mean, yeah, just hitting at the right moment, these things can be very effective. For Joe Biden himself, you know, I see him in debates and whatnot, and you see him in a lot of different settings, like in a debate when he's trying to rush the words out or something, he tends to stumble. But when he's talking a lot more slower or something very deeply personal to him, stories that he's shared about his family and his sons, he slows down. He's a lot more articulate. And then people really do connect with him in those moments. So I always just feel like Joe Biden just needs to slow down and he's a much more effective speaker. And this is going to be one of those questions, right, as to how do Biden's advisors how do they decide to address this? Do they perhaps make him a little less accessible to the media? Do they make him a little less accessible at events? Do they sort of put him in interviews in formats and settings that might feel a little bit more programmed and a little bit more controlled? These are all things that I can guarantee you the Biden campaign is going to be thinking about going forward. Alex Eisenstadt, reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The ARDS patients, the acute respiratory distress patients, had an average age of 61, and those who did not develop that had an average age of 49. So again, we're seeing that severity of disease, so this is on top of just getting it, period, but severity also skews toward more elderly patients. Joining us now is Sharon Bagley, Senior Science Writer at Stat News. Thanks for joining us, Sharon. Thank you, Oscar. We've been doing constant updates on the COVID-19 coronavirus. I wanted to talk a little bit about what groups are most at risk from coronavirus. And obviously, we know older people right now, they're not faring too well. And, and in the majority of cases, that's where the most amount of deaths are occurring. But Sharon, you looked at a bunch of different studies that were out of China. Obviously, they have the big numbers there, the most amount of cases. And these studies were looking at who's most susceptible between the elderly and the young, male or female, things like that. So Sharon, share some of these findings with us. As you say, Oscar, the vast majority of cases are, of course, in China where the disease started, and they therefore have the most robust numbers. So just very briefly, the vast majority of cases are in people 30 to 79, and breaking that down even further, 78% of cases were in people older than 50. Look at it another way, only 8% of cases were in 20-somethings, 1% in teenagers, and less than 1% in kids 9 or younger. So simply in terms of contracting the disease, we can talk about how severe it is and fatality in a minute, older people are clearly much more susceptible. You talk about older people, obviously, a lot of them have underlying health conditions. A lot of it has to do with the strength and weakness of that respiratory system. One of the things that came up was a lot of them developed acute respiratory distress syndrome, which builds up fluid in the uh, small air sacs of the lungs. So a lot of these people that contracted this specific thing, they had an average age of about 61. And about half of the patients who developed that respiratory distress syndrome did die, compared to only 9% of patients who did not develop the syndrome but otherwise had COVID-19. So there you're looking at, as you say, a probably already impaired respiratory system. Older people are more likely to have pulmonary diseases, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, asthma, other respiratory conditions. And so they're already impaired. And therefore, when the virus hits, and of course, it lodges mostly in the lower airways, 
that's just too far, and they therefore succumb. The ARDS patients, the acute respiratory distress patients, had an average age of 61, and those who did not develop that had an average age of 49. So again, we're seeing that severity of disease, so this is on top of just getting it, period, but severity also skews toward more elderly patients. What does the breakdown look like along gender lines? It seems that men are a little bit more susceptible to contracting the COVID-19 than women are. This is a little less clear than the age breakdown, which is absolutely clear. So out of China, a slight preponderance of men were developing the disease. On the other hand, the numbers out of Washington state have found that 55% of the cases are people who were female at birth. So that's a difference. And so one explanation for that might be that, of course, to count as a case, you need to come to the attention of the healthcare system. And this could be tied to the severity of cases in men versus women, i.e. it does seem to be the case that men are more likely to get severe disease and also to die from it compared to women. So if men are getting more severe disease, they are more likely to go to the doctor, to be admitted to the hospital, etc., and therefore to be counted. So the susceptibility rate in terms of gender is a little bit cloudy, but what does seem clear is that the fatality rates are very, very different for men and women. Again, out of China, 1.7% of women who contracted the disease died compared to 2.8% for men. So again, if you look at that, I think the explanation for the gender gap and just getting it might have to do with the fact that men are getting sicker from it. One of the main factors that leads to death in a lot of this does seem to be these pre-existing illnesses. If you have some underlying illness, it is more likely that the COVID-19, you might die from it or you'll get a severe case of it. And it could be a bunch of different things, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, hepatitis B, kidney disease, even cancer, all increases the rate that you'll get a more severe case of COVID-19. And a lot of these deaths, it seems that Maybe you didn't die specifically from the coronavirus. It might have been an exacerbation of the existing diseases you might have had. And I think that surprised a lot of people, Oscar. So as you're saying, like, why would cancer raise the risk of both developing COVID-19 and having a severe case and of dying from it? In fact, the scientists in China found that cancer raises the risk by 3.5-fold, so 3,000%. And one explanation for that might be that many chemotherapies suppress the immune system, and that might make people more likely to get it. For other underlying conditions, again, I mentioned chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, a respiratory disease, obviously. That sort of makes more sense. But then you look at diabetes, hypertension. Why should those make people more likely to contract it and also to get severely ill? from it. So that remains to be figured out. Again, the science is definitely still ongoing. But what might be happening is that although people are not dying from COVID-19, it's somehow making their underlying conditions worse. And the reason I suggest that is that researchers in China found that in a number of cases, the immediate cause of death was not pneumonia, which is what is causing most of the COVID-19 deaths, but instead heart disease, stroke, high blood levels of potassium, which reflects kidney failure. So somehow this virus might, in already sick people, be exacerbating existing disease. Sharon Bagley, Senior Science Writer at Stat News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.